Welcome to Caring on the Go, your exclusive access to the latest news and commentary from the current issue of Caring for the Ages, the official newspaper of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. For a limited time, AMDA's new pocket guide, Parkinson's Disease and Psychosis in the Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Setting, is free when you download the AMDA app. The Pocket Guide highlights key information needed to recognize, assess, treat, and monitor people with Parkinson's disease in the PALTC setting. It also includes a special focus on Parkinson's disease psychosis. Download the AMDA app to access the new Pocket Guide today. And now here's your host for Caring on the Go, Dr. Wayne Saltzman. Welcome to Caring on the Go. Caring on the Go, a member of the AMDA on the Go podcast series, spotlights articles and stories from the AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine's news magazine, Caring for the Ages. With every new issue, we welcome, of course, Caring for the Ages editor-in-chief, Dr. Elizabeth Gaelic, to discuss some key articles. In this episode from the November and December 2021 combined issue of Caring, including uh, it's focus on serious and persistent mental illness. Dr. Gaelic is a nurse practitioner in long-term care and community-based settings through a clinical practice with Shepherd Pratt Health System. She is a professor at the University of Maryland School of Nursing, where she teaches in the Adult Gerontology Primary Care Nurse Practitioner Program and conducts research to improve practices for older adults with dementia and their caregivers in long-term care. Dr. Gaelic, as always, welcome back to another episode of Caring on the Go. Thanks so much, Wayne. I'm thrilled to be here with you today. Dr. Gaelic, the November and December 2021 combined issue is special, um, and uh, you focus on a serious and persistent um, mental illness. You know, I want to talk about your, your editorial first uh, around that issue, which is also called SPMI. Um, in your caring collaborative piece you know you offer some history some challenges and some successes this is um this is a, a rapidly rising issue you know tell us about your reflections in your piece and you know and tell me <laughs> really why this topic and why now so actually um, the idea for this topic came from the readers and wow. the editorial advisory board of King mm. for the ages um, and i have to also admit that i pushed it a little bit because it's always been a topic that's been near and dear to my heart having mm. a history in working in inpatient psychiatry at the early part of my career mm. um, and then continuing to see patients who um, have serious and persistent mental illness in post-acute and long-term care settings and some of the challenges that they face as well as caregivers and uh, when every year when we look at um, what's being read in caring for the ages and what's being requested it seems that um, behavioral and mental health topics um, are right up there at the top with legal topics, as well as um, information about ethical concerns. So that really was the motivation. Um, plus, you know, I think we're seeing, um, you know, the statistics vary, but I think we're seeing an increase in, among older adults with serious and persistent mental illness. Um, and they have a variety of challenges um, in these settings, such as reduced life expectancy compared to the general population. And the cost of their health care is more than double that 
of older adults who don't have um, SPMI. So, so the article that, that I shared gives you a little bit of the history about, um, which you may or may not be familiar with in terms of um, the deinstitutionalization movement. And then unfortunately it's underfunding and um, having uh, patients who had formerly been in uh, state hospitals um, not being able to survive and do well in community-based settings. And then ultimately, um, nursing homes and unfortunately prisons became kind of imperfect solutions. Uh, in terms of the increasing prevalence of serious and persistent mental illness in post-acute and long-term care, we're seeing that um, across diagnoses. So we're seeing schizophrenia increase. We're also seeing bipolar uh, disorder increase in these settings. And um, you know, as I was saying earlier, there's really a lack of appropriate community-based alternatives. There are some, and we're going to talk about that in one of the later articles. Mm -hmm. um, additionally, um, there's been some recent press um, about the increased use of a schizophrenia diagnosis may actually reflect, in some cases, false diagnoses that right. are being used to improve antipsychotic use performance measures. Right. 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 So, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, some of the challenges we know in terms of um, individuals with SMI are more likely to go to nursing homes that have poor quality of care indicators, they have higher rates of hospitalization, and they're more likely to convert from a skilled care admission to a long-term care admission, uh, admission by four times um, their age match peers with other um, non-mental health conditions. Mm. And you know, staff have challenges in terms of lack of training and fear. So some of the potential solutions that I discussed, um, one was staff needing institutional support and education to better understand symptoms of serious and persistent mental illness, and really having more of a collaborative work environment that helps staff feel more confident in their ability to care for people in this population. And I think the society's Behavioral and Mental Health Advo um, Advisory Council is really doing a great job with that under the leadership of Leah Watson and Richard Jaman. Next, I think we have to decrease the stigma of mental illness in the facilities where we work. Ways about doing that is teaching staff appropriate terminology to report psychiatric symptoms, teaching them uh, behavioral de-escalation techniques, and um, working with staff to have appropriate recreational and self-care training opportunities um, for patients with serious and persistent mental illness. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, really not um, looking at all of these post-acute and long-term care admissions as permanent placements. There may be some in this population who could handle um, um, a lower level of care, such as assisted living or a group home. So keeping that in mind as well. So those were just a few of my thoughts and kind of how we came up with the idea about this special issue. Oh, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful read. And I, I and I have two things to, to add. One is um, bravo to you and the editorial board for being so responsive to your readers um, uh, interests. Uh, I think that's absolutely wonderful. And, you know, as you were talking, I had a flashback Um uh, talking about your early training, um, being uh, in an inpatient, you know, doing inpatient psychiatry work. So um, in the uh, early 90s, as I uh, doing my dissertation work, it was on the 10th floor 
uh, which was the top floor, of a building called the Solomon Carter Fuller Building. And in uh, actually at that time still, it was one of the state mental health hospitals. And um, the story of the 70s when Thorazine, you know, came into regular use and, and essentially freed those with serious and persistent mental illness from inpatient facilities. Well, I was I was there in history and you, your story just made me think of that again. So, wow. And I'm sure many, many, many others will think of, uh, of uh, stories like that and, and how really serious and persistent mental illness has been part of all of our lives, all of those of us in healthcare at one time or another. Wow. Absolutely. I, I was also fortunate um, to have um, clinical experiences in my um, bachelor's program to get my nursing degree mm. and mm. got to work with a, a group of um, older veterans who um, lived in a group home, but did a, a life skills training workshop once a week with them and really enjoyed that opportunity. Wow. Wow. Well, let's get to, um, to one of the articles. I, I want to talk about the, uh, uh, the front cover article from the November and December 2021 combined issue of Caring. One of your extraordinary staff writers, Christine Kilgore, in this cover story, Managing Serious Mental Illness, Team Training, Antipsychotic Therapy, and Research Trends, you know, reminded me of my early days in skilled nursing when I could literally count on one hand the number of folks with SPMI who were admitted to my facilities. Today, it is very different with a significant prevalence of serious and, per and persistent mental illness and the need for a new way to think about utilizing resources and care, and I guess that's key. You know, can we bring staff training, access to mental health professionals, um, and all other care considerations together to attend to this rising unique population? You know, tell us, please about this article. Sure. So um, one of um, the people who was interviewed um, was a nurse at um, Harmony Point, and uh, they talked about the importance of destigmatizing mental illness and mm. how people are initially a little ambivalent or, or concerned, but that um, having the presence of um, behavioral health specialists and providing staff for training for all the staff, not just the nursing staff, but those who work in um, environmental services and housekeeping and dietary to be able to interact appropriately with people um, with mental illness is, is very important. And I, I loved one of the comments um, that was made um, that sometimes people are afraid of behaviors and of people being different, but we have to kind of ask ourselves, is it really, um, such a big deal if someone acts um, in a certain way, even if it's unusual, as long as they can do it safely. So this yeah. whole article, I think, just helped about reframing um, mental illness and what's really important. And, you know, kind of back to person-centered care. Mm. Mm. Dr. Watson also was interviewed for this, um, Leah Watson, and talked about the impact of poverty and homeless among people with serious and persistent mental illness how often they have some type of sentinel event like a stroke or an accident that makes them unable to kind of care for themselves any longer and then they wind up in this um, you know post-acute skilled uh, setting 
And, you know, we, the goal really needs to be to try to get them back to their previous level of function. Unfortunately, um, most of our long-term care facilities are really not set up um, to, to care for this population in terms of activities or training or resources. Um, and at Harmony Point, they have some unique relationships with a nonprofit community health provider where they provide um, counseling for these individuals and case managers and a crisis line um, if needed. And you know, every year, all of the staff are undergoing annual refresher uh, courses in, in how to best care for individuals with serious and persistent mm. mental illness. Mm-hmm. And the article also brings up um, the, the need for uh, education around trauma-informed care. Yeah, yep. As well as you know, kind of considering uh, antipsychotic therapy and making sure mm. you actually have an accurate diagnosis because the records that they may be coming with may not be accurate. Right. Um, and, you know, balancing when it's appropriate to consider a gradual dose reduction in some of the psychotropic meds versus when it's not appropriate. Um, so I think that the article gives some good advice that way as well. They also talked about back to the trauma informed care, but, um, Having uh, peer support for these um, residents and patients is also important in addition to structure and activities that really meet their needs. And now, a word from our sponsor, U.S. Post-Acute Care. Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now more than ever, post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients At U.S. Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost, and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At U.S. Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. And Dr. Gaelic, I want to thank you for our absolutely unplanned segue into our next article, which happens to be on gradual dose reductions of psychotropic medications. Well, your foresight is amazing. Um, psychotropic medications continue to be an ongoing and heated discussion. Uh, clinical pharmacist and fellow of the American Society for Consultant Pharmacists, a- ASCP, Rick Foley writes um, our other cover story for the November and December uh, 2021 combined issue of Caring entitled Key Guidelines for Gradual Dose Reductions of Psychotropic Medications. You know, he poses the question that he is most often asked, how does our facility implement a successful program? And does his article provide us with an answer? I I think it does. And I think what he's really kind of trying to get down to is that it's not so much a specific program 
as it is good clinical practice. Right. And he provides, you know, a lot of clinical considerations and tips that I think all prescribers and all team members um, in post-acute and long-term care can really benefit from. Mm. Um, so one of my favorite um, that, that he has here is find the low-hanging fruit. So if you yep. have somebody who's taking a low dose that is likely probably not very effective um, at the dose that it's currently prescribed, um, consider cutting that back or eliminating it. Um, so, so go with the easy cases first. A another important point he makes that I think um, that nurses and nursing assistants and family members need to be aware of in particular is that psychotropic medications take a while to work. So in many cases, you might see some early impact at two to four weeks, but the full effects really um, may not um, be apparent until two months later. Absolutely. And so as providers, we have to kind of resist that temptation, that knee-jerk temptation to increase the doses too quickly. Mm, mm, mm. And another point he makes really is about not, be, not being afraid to uh, not prescribe. And that rather than just saying you're doing non-drug um, non interventions, specifically name what you're doing. Make it clear so that other people can follow the care plan. Uh, yeah, you know, the, uh, we practitioners in this, in this environment are good, are good at what we do. And, it's, um, and this is the kind of thing, and I, this is what I thought of when I read this article, that, you know, what, he, what he's really saying is that um, this, this is business as usual. And, it, it, and if it's not, it should be, because we know what to do. We know, we know our business. And, um, you know, what, what better place, as you were talking about, um, you know, the low-hanging fruit, what better place, what better controlled environment with constant medical supervision to be able to say, I'm going to take away or reduce drug X and let's see what happens, knowing that somebody is safe and let's, let's have that be business as usual. Kind of makes sense. Yeah. I mean, he talks about the risk-benefit relationship and how um, some of us have a... a um, a focus on um, thinking that the benefits are much greater than they actually may be and the risks are much less. And so just trying to reframe that. Um, and, you know, Dr. Steve's article this month kind of touches on the, the point mm, of mm, mm. it. it's not just a program. It really needs to be good clinical practice that yep. everybody in the interdisciplinary team is following. So I think that um, you know, those two articles really complement one another nicely. Yeah. And while we're, while AMDA, while the society is really focusing on the concept of deprescribing, this, this need that we must satisfy for gradual dose reduction fits so nicely into that as well. And, um, you know, right now it's on the dashboard. And I think that, uh, I think it's something that we all can, can carry out. So I'm thrilled that, uh, that uh, you had uh, Rick Foley uh, write this article. Thank you for that. Um, One more thing I just want to oh, throw, please, throw in please. there, Wayne. Sorry about that. No. Is you know there was some caution um, expressed in the article about younger individuals mm. with serious and persistent mental illness. How um, 
if they're not having adverse events associated with the medicine and they seem to be tolerating it, they may not be great candidates for gradual dose reduction compared to someone who maybe um, had a lifelong you know, schizophrenia and now is older and has dementia and maybe a stroke on top of that. And that might be an appropriate person to, to consider um, a gradual dose reduction. So you know, there, there, are, uh, there is fine tuning that we need to be able to do and, and um, you know, consider that guidelines are guidelines, but we, we need to practice um, uh, you know, safely and, and with thought. I'm so happy you made that distinction. It is so true in me with my geriatrician blinders on, even though serious and persistent mental illness is on, is on my mind every, uh, every day. It, it, you're absolutely right. And there's no surveyor that I'm aware of that uh, would not um, appreciate um, a provider documenting that um, you know a gradual dose reduction at this time is not wise due to um, stability of medical condition under under such and such circumstance. So wonderful, wonderful. Not I want to call it a caveat, but but wonderful distinction to make. Yeah, and being able to discuss our rationale for not doing that gradual dose reduction, right. or if we agree with it documenting that as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So as we've just uh, done another little segue, thinking about older adults specifically, um, uh, our last focus article uh, is by the team of Stevens and Menino um, from uh, the November and December uh, 2021 combined issue of Caring, which is entitled Older Adults and serious mental illness, what we know and what we imagine. I, I really liked the title. Um, the picture that they paint around the, the current state of affairs for an aging population is one with which we are all too familiar, but they imagine something better for the future. Tell us about their article. Sure. So I actually have had the pleasure of working with uh, Georgia Stevens, who's an advanced practice nurse um, in psychiatric nursing, and gotten to kind of um, see some benefits of the program they discuss. Um, so um, it's a partnership where people who are older adults who are um, still hospitalized in state um, facilities so uh, they're working with uh, staff in specially trained assisted living facilities so that they can integrate um, residents with serious and persistent mental illness into um, an assisted living setting uh, and that the staff are really prepared to care for them. And they go about it by looking really holistically at the patients and not just what their deficits are, but also what are their strengths? What are they good at? Um, what can be drawn upon to make them successful in a less restrictive environment? And they consider things like housing as a first step. Um, what would be an appropriate place um, for this individual to live? And then doing a very careful functional assessment to make sure that the place that's been identified can meet the patient's needs. And then last, um, having a plan that includes monitoring of medication and what to do when, you know, that client or that patient is experiencing symptoms. Um, they also integrate um, kind of three tiers um, to these assisted living facilities where they provide training related to psychosocial skills, 
um, for the individuals with uh, serious and persistent mental illness, as well as illness self-management, and then um, really working on that collaborative care with these behavioral health assisted living homes. Mm. And some of this is funded um, through a community options um, medical assistance waiver program. And that helps to offset some of the cost for the AL um, placements. Right. You know, I, I love that idea, you know, and as you're speaking, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, person centered care and, and, you know, this is what we talk about all the time, but, you know, at the end of the day, um, we providers still have agendas that we um, we feel that we're either obli- obligated or or regulated or or contracted to fulfill, you know. And what you're talking about, Dr. Gaelic, you know, with these unique facilities is um, we need is casting our agendas aside when it's a you know when we aren't obligated or legislated or contracted, um, and m- truly meeting people where they are and rotating around them truly. I think that to me is the definition of person-centered care. Totally agree. We often think of person-centered care only involving people with dementia, but it really, it, it, it's for everybody. It's for all our residents, whether it's in assisted living or um, post-acute and long-term, other long-term care settings. So mm-hmm. such, such an important thing to consider people's strengths and um, you know, trying to meet their individual needs as best we can. I, absolutely, I, I, I'm always thinking that there is a Michelangelo out there who just needs support to be able to come out and just bring beautiful things to society. And so we're getting there. We're getting there. We're getting there. Um, So, you know, Dr. Gaelic, while these spotlighted articles around serious and persistent mental illness as PMI are, uh, are wonderful additions to the special section of the November and December uh, 2021 combined issue. You've already mentioned some of the uh, honorable mentions that I was going to bring up like Dr. Steve's column. What a bastion of knowledge that, um, that Steve Levinson brings to, uh, to uh, to caring, um, so many things to think about. But Barb Resnick um, and Paige Hector uh, have a piece that follows a, a case of an individual with SPMI with team perspectives, like uh, uh, Michelle Bellantonio um, from Maryland, uh, amazing. Um, and past president Susan Levy uh, has an article with some uh, AMDA uh, foundation perspectives. And of course, there are other pieces by your amazing staff writers, and I can go on and on and on, but it's a, a really great issue. Bravo. Thanks so much, Wayne. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. No, very much so. And our readers and our readers will too. Um, uh, and uh, I encourage everyone, um, you know, under, under the leadership of Editor-in-Chief Dr. Elizabeth Gaelic, Caring for the Ages continues to review and reflect the wonderful work being done by the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care of Medicine. Uh, leaders, members, and communities. Please take a look at the November and December 2021 combined issue. Well, Dr. Gaelic, thank you for spending your time again with Caring on the Go. Thank you, Wayne. References for this podcast can be found at www.caringfortheages.com. 
www.caringonthego.com. Until next time, I'm Dr. Wayne Saltzman for Caring on the Go. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care.